This is Fake Plastic Podcast, a podcast that unlocks the alchemy of Radiohead, one song, music video, or live performance at a time. My name is Savannah Wright. Barney Hoskins' experience with Radiohead follows a conventional narrative. It starts, as most stories do, with creep. I remember seeing them unloading their gear outside a theater called the Clapham Grand here, I guess around you know, 93, 94. And I guess at that point, you know, a lot of us just thought, well, you know, this is just another sort of loud kind of post-grunge, angst-ridden British rock band. I mean, there were a few of them around at that time. His opinion began to change when he heard the bends. I remember being on staff at Mojo magazine and somebody saying, this album is really different. This album is... They're really doing something different here. And and then somebody putting on the bands and the first few tracks just sort of hitting me. And I was and so my God, this is really powerful. Really, really powerful. And I'm kind of I'm intrigued now. I'm interested. They've really kind of gone far beyond what they were doing before and, you know, left, you know, creeping things behind. This is this is really different. It's it's big music, but it's not like I don't know, it's not like you too. It does something that's really their own. But it wasn't until OK Computer that he was completely sold. I remember getting OK Computer the day that it came out and as a cassette, a sort of cassette somewhere, and driving back up to Woodstock, New York, where I was living, listening to this cassette in the car and just, you know, having my tiny mind blown, really. I mean, that, it's as simple as that. I just thought... This is extraordinary. This is so ambitious. This is so powerful and intense and beautiful. And it really is the best, you know, quote unquote, rock record I've heard in a while. And so that was it. You know, I was on board. Barney's experience is not unique. Rather, it epitomizes Radiohead's climb to critical success. From their inconspicuous beginning, to their startling sophomore release, to what many deem to be their masterpiece. And it's a story he chronicles in greater detail through his new book, Present Tense, a Radiohead Compendium. Today's episode isn't about a specific song, but it does serve as a belated preface to the theme of our first season, Radiohead and the Press. This season, I'm interviewing journalists, authors, and musicologists, people on the outside looking in, and Present Tense encapsulates this theme. It's the story of Radiohead from the critic's perspective, an anthology of profiles, reviews, and other journalistic pieces about Radiohead, their work, and their various solo projects. The book starts with reviews of their early performances in Oxford, tracing their efforts through each album cycle until the present day. Barney, who co-founded an online music journalism archive called Rock's Backpages, compiled this book. So, you know, we've started doing these, these books, these anthologies, and we had done Joni Mitchell and Steely Dan, and I thought, well, it would be good to do something that was British and something that was a little bit younger. Uh, I mean, Radiohead are no longer a young band, obviously, but they're certainly younger than Steely Dan and Joni Mitchell. Um, and so that was really the story behind this book. I mean, I, I, I thought, yeah, there hasn't been a huge amount in print about radio. There certainly hasn't been a definitive book, I don't think. And we had uh, a really, I think, interesting mixture of pieces, selections of pieces on Rock's Back Pages, but there were, there were also things that were not on Rock's Back Pages by writers that we hadn't signed up. And so I thought, you know, this is this is a 
This is a band, probably more than a lot of bands the last 20 years or so, who, you know, very literate group, you know, educated group, literate group. So I, I think that interesting, and, you know, I think there's been some interesting writing about Radiohead by intelligent and articulate writers. So this would seem a kind of, I don't want to say a no-brainer, but it would seem like a very natural fit. So that's what we did. So let's start at the beginning. Before Radiohead, there was On a Friday, a group of Oxford teenagers who worked on songs every Friday in the music room of their high school. The band went through several iterations in the beginning. At one point, it even featured a saxophone section. But once Colin Greenwood's younger brother Johnny joined the team, the lineup was complete. And this lineup of five, with Tom York on vocals, Colin Greenwood on bass, Johnny Greenwood on lead guitar, Ed O'Brien on guitar, and Phil Selway on drums, has continued ever since. If you're curious what Proto Radiohead sounded like, here's a clip from their 1986 demo, a song called Everybody Knows. Present Tense begins with reviews of On a Friday's demo tape and live shows. I really wanted a selection of pieces that would sort of tell a story that would uh, map the various twists and turns in the Radiohead story. I thought it was really important to start with the earliest things ever written about them before they were even Radiohead. So uh, that was important. I mean, there's some strange things said in those pieces. Uh, the references to Theatre of Hate and Kirk Brandon in Ronan Munro's review. In case you don't know, Kirk Brandon is the leader of the post-punk 80s band Theatre of Hate. This is what he sounds like. I don't think anyone would compare Tom York's voice to Kirk Brandon's now. But nonetheless, it's interesting to see how he as a local writer was trying to place and contextualize the group at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, He makes big claims for them and they were in due course vindicated. John Harris has become a very respected political writer here. Uh, Also reviewed them as on a Friday a few months later, also in Oxford. So, uh, you know, he's a a terrible name, but he... um, he says promising is an understatement. So, you know, he also can see, I think, where where this band could, could go. Although the band had hardly begun their career, there's a strange sense of inevitability running through these early reflections. Several critics write that On a Friday was different from other local bands, that their performances attracted the attention of the A&R teams at multiple labels. The group seemed destined for fame. Barney, however, didn't see it that way. Well, I never saw on a Friday, um, and as I say, you know, I didn't, I didn't see Radiohead at the very beginning. I, I, I just know that from. I wouldn't have said. I mean, you listen back to Pablo Honey now, and you can. I think this is one when a band does really grow very fast and evolve into something really impressive. It's easy to, you know, for them go back to the beginning and sort of hear the seeds of that. And I think mm-hmm. when I played Pablo Honey the other day. 
prior to this book coming over, I revisited it, having not really listened to it for, for a long time, and I could sort of hear what was latent there, what was what we know as kind of uh, uh, as what's great about Radiohead. But at the time when I heard the record, I certainly didn't think, well, this band is going to be enormous or important. Um, the British rock at that time, I found it a bit lumpy and uninspiring, you know. So I remember listening to Pablo Pablo. In fact, first thing probably was the, was the Anyone Can Play guitar EP. I remember being sent that and playing that. And I'm not saying in one ear out the other, but it, but it wasn't. But I didn't see them play. As I said, I saw them un- unloading their gear. <laughs> I still remember Tom Tom York, you know, carrying stuff out the back of this van. And but I wasn't seeing the gig. I was just walking past. And I remember thinking, well, that's Radiohead, and they're just like so many bands of that period. Savannah, they just, I just thought, well, you know, yeah, they're, they're going to come and they're going to go. Um, <laughs> I, I, I severely underestimated them. That's the truth. Yeah. That's interesting that you mentioned you didn't really think they would go that far, but that's maybe because you didn't see them live, whereas all these other yeah. articles are talking yeah, about I, the live. I, I'm sure that's right. You know, yeah. I, I didn't see them live. Um, I don't think I saw them live until OK Computer. Yeah. Hmm. There must be some magic there in their live performance. <laughs> <laughs> On a Friday, changed their name to Radiohead in 1991 after signing to EMI. Apparently, their name was confusing concert goers who thought the phrase referred to when the show would happen, not who was performing. Early on, critics compared the band to Suede, another English rock band from the late 80s and early 90s. I guess, again, you know, Suede were not the if the, they're not the anti-Oasis, but they were much sort of artier and more kind of androgynous and glam-influenced and, and Bowie-influenced, you know. Um, I wouldn't say those things about Radiohead, but I think that people loosely, well, I mean, of course, the famous sort of sparring is really between Blur and Oasis. But there certainly was, there was in the kind of rock critic discourse in the UK music press, there was a sort of, you know, loosely people fell into different camps along, you know, like kind of geographical and class lines to some extent, as well as just musical lines. But I think there, there were people who really preferred Suede and Radiohead to kind of Oasis and the, the, the Manchester bands, those sort of northern Britpop bands who just perhaps weren't as subtle, you know. Um, Radiohead and Suede were more kind of southern, maybe slightly more educated, maybe slightly more middle class. I don't know. I mean, that's not any uh, particular reason why, you know, uh, music should be better or, or, or worse. It's odd to hear Radiohead likened to other bands when so many groups now are being compared to them. But, of course, no one knew then that Radiohead would go on to become one of the greatest bands of the century. I mean, I don't think Radiohead Radiohead ever sort of thought about Britpop or anything like that. They were not part of that scene. They were very much an entity unto themselves. So, in a way, there was nothing to break free from. They were on their own path. They weren't identified with any particular scene, even if there were bands around the Oxford area. I don't think I don't think Radiohead fit into any pigeonholes or, or any scenes, really. Mm-hmm. So I think the Benz just didn't sound like anything other than really kind of majestic, <laughs> you know, sort of almost kind of classically majestic rock music, although it had 
you know, interesting textures and Johnny Greenwood was obviously doing things on the guitar that very few other bands were. Having said that, I mean, there were there were two or three guitarists at that time who, you know, were, who were really interesting, who weren't just bashing out riffs. Yeah. But I think the, the real answer to your question is they just, they were, Radiohead were on their own path. And once they got to work on OK Computer with, with Nigel Godrich, they were prepared to take the giant risk in the sense of being pilloried for being so ambitious and almost proggy, as we know. You know, when Paranoid Android came out, maybe it was almost tongue-in-cheek, but as far as, like, fans of bands like Oasis would have gone, Paranoid Android was treated as a sort of slight, almost comical kind of um, an over-ambitious and, dare one say, it, slightly pretentious piece of music because it was so long and all the time, signature changes. Mm-hmm. But it was a real statement that they were they were prepared to kind of risk being them period as pretentious. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess that kind of teaches me that even though they were compared to Suede, it was just for lack of a better comparison because they were just their own kind I of I think band. so. I mean, because Suede would never have done... I mean, look, well, having said that, Suede did go in, in, in a in artier and almost more proggy direction with Dogman Star. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think there are, there are parallels there. There are parallels, but I don't think Suede would ever have done or would have ever, ever been capable of doing anything like Paranoid Android. Radiohead defied categorization in another way, by rejecting the decadent rock star lifestyle of classic British rock bands. You know, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll practically invented by the Rolling Stones. That way of life was resurfacing, with Britpop bands like Oasis and Blur. But Radiohead had none of it. In his profile of the band for Q, Tom Doyle described them as, quote, Evian sipping abstainers, content to play a hand of bridge on their tour bus. They were intellectuals who didn't esteem fame, and Barney said that the press held the band in higher esteem because of this. To me, it's a very commendable aspect of Radiohead that they've never, I mean, or, never, but but they've very rarely fallen foul of the, of the trappings of the rock lifestyle. You know, they've made a really concerted effort not to behave like cliched rock stars. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that at times, you know, the only thing one could say is that Tom, um, you know, came under enormous pressure and there, there was a lot of attention on him particularly and at times during the Radiohead story, you know, up to including and probably after OK Computer, where that pressure got to him. And like anyone of that age, I think would would have found it hard to handle. You know, he can be quite snappy in interviews and quite self-important and and and, and neurotic and, and sort of angsty and, and petulant, you know, um, as I say, I think I think it was a really difficult position to be in. Some of the interviews really do focus on that. The other members of the band are saying, well, you know, we were worried about Tom. I mean, you know, he almost like had a nervous breakdown. And, you know, I mean, they were being hailed as the saviors of rock and roll and the most important band in the world. And that, you know, that I think was an enormous pressure for, for Tom to carry. But I think he came through that. He found a place of kind of sanity. He, he managed to kind of grow up and, and find a way of handling that. And a big part of it has been to, in a sense, kind of really step back from the business and from um, overexposure and to concentrate on, you know, his private life and his family mm-hmm. and just 
they've never kind of done the obvious things that rock stars do that tend to drag them down. You know, they they didn't sort of move to LA. They they've stayed put, and and I, and I think they're very very careful about not falling into those traps. And I think there is, to answer the part two of your question, I think there is, for people who admire them, part of the admiration is to do with the fact that they've, you know, they've essentially behaved quite well and politically, you know, they're on the right side of the battle, you know, their hearts and minds are in the right place. So they are the sort of thinking person's band in some ways, you know. Um, you know, they're, they're important in, in what they stand for. That's not to say Radiohead didn't receive any criticism. British critics harped on their middle-class background and university degrees, calling them overeducated. It's a critique particular to the UK class system. Obviously, the way the English class system plays out has less currency or relevance in America in that I don't think that a lot of American critics or fans would necessarily have even known, let alone cared about, the, the sort of class differences between, say, Radiohead and Oasis. Yeah. I guess that would be the point. Um, but then you would still have to, if you compared an Oasis song, like roll with it, with Paranoid Android, you know, uh, it, even an American who was not au fait at all with the English class system would sort of be able to distinguish between these two pieces of music. So, but I, but I accept that there are people in the UK who would feel differently about Radiohead and maybe I mean they tend to be middle class overeducated middle class people who are sort of embarrassed and ashamed by that who who criticise Radiohead because because it actually makes them uncomfortable <laughs> you know like my partner like uh, Mark Pringle my Rocks Back Pages partner in our podcast can't 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 sort of abide what Tom stands for and Mark very much probably falls into that camp he sees something in Tom and he calls it you know Tom's pain you know I'm not interested in Tom's yeah. pain um, um, and maybe you know maybe so we had a little bit of a joke about that <laughs> and I said well whose pain are you interested in he, right. said, he said in his very posh voice I'm only interested in working class pain now that's a kind of inverted snobbery in a way isn't it but the idea, I mean, it cuts to the heart of the of the sort of argument, you know, what right do privileged middle class people have to make music about kind of emotional or torment? Right. And of course, now we're in we're in a kind of world now where where a lot of British bands are middle class because, as Mark makes the point in our podcast, you know, they're the only ones who can who can afford the the penury of the of the first few years of getting a band off the ground. Mm-hmm. So just to clarify, before Radiohead, was were a lot of the bands that were popular, or I guess respected in in the UK, were they from the working class? Was that kind of the trend? Well, I, I you you would have to say, Savannah, that the whole kind of dream of liberating yourself from a poor background absolutely started in like the the, the late fifties, early sixties, when um, young, talented, creative people from poor backgrounds could could get a break yeah. because they could go to art school. Um, and so many of the great bands in the 60s, you know, essentially came out of the art schools. I mean, that's, that's a really important part of the story of British pop. Mm-hmm. 
so you know you know the, the Beatles were essentially working class the who were essentially working class you know I mean there's gradations of class you know you know there's always sort of argument with sort of who was who was more working <laughs> class Lennon or McCartney or everybody everybody comes from slightly different levels of of privilege or lack of but the fact is that British pop the whole story of the 60s you know, as initiated by the Beatles, would not have happened and couldn't happen now, uh, it, it, because because there, there, there was there was a kind of leg up for these these young musicians, which there just isn't anymore, um, and that went on right through into certainly into the eighties. Another focus of present tense is lead singer Tom York and his role in the band. In his profile for Esquire, Adam Sweeting contends that the other members of Radiohead depend on York. John Leckie, who worked with the band on the Benz, also said that he believes the music comes from Tom. In time, Tom became known as somewhat of a benevolent dictator. Barney, however, disagrees. It's very difficult to say from the outside of their creative process. I mean, it's not how I would see it. I, I mean, he is the focal point. He is the singer. You know, is he the chief melodist? Is he the chief architect of their songs? My my sense is it is much, it is much more collaborative than that. And certainly, I wouldn't have imagined that, that Johnny Greenwood, who is clearly a musical genius, is someone who just does Tom's bidding. You know, so I would think that much of the greatest music comes out of these five guys really like banging heads together and you know it's kind of created in, in that crucible but I honestly you know I mean I don't know enough about the actual process of how how their music comes together how their songs are written but I, I, I doubt and I have no evidence that it's about sort of Tom writing all the songs bringing the songs in and then teaching them to to the other guys I mean it, it really doesn't work like that. Yeah. No, I mean, especially because, like, Phil Selway and, as he's mentioned, Johnny Greenwood have had their own solo careers as well, yeah. and so they must have input, I mean, I'm sure. So a question about compiling this book. What did it teach you about Radiohead's relationship with the press? Um, I think, you know, as with so many great bands there is a very uneasy relationship there there's a real suspicion there's there's a slight hostility really always i mean certainly from tom i mean tom just seems at times like a paranoid android you know you know he's 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 very quick to blow up boundaries he's very thin-skinned i mean i'm sure much less so now but i think johnny and came across just more. I mean, his temperament was was just a little less uh, abrasive and hostile mm-hmm. than the others. I think again. I think so. You know, Ed and Colin and Phil all seem pretty genial. Tom just seems to be the one who, you know, he's the kind of <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> he's he's the fly in the ointment. You know, yeah. Um, yeah I mean, there clearly is a residual suspicion towards the press there and. There's a real unwillingness to overexpose themselves in the media. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, they don't need to. They, what do they need to prove anymore? They need to do interviews. So, you know, they've they've chosen a very unorthodox way of marketing their music and presenting themselves and selling themselves in the world. You know, yeah. I mean, they've just done it their own way. I think that's just really commendable. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I also wanted to ask, I guess, going back to the question about the relationship with the press, and you mentioned that the others seem pretty genial, but then Tom is kind of standoffish. Do you, do you yeah, spiky. <laughs> do you feel like he's putting on a persona? Because that was something that was mentioned in the Tom Doyle interview in Q. I don't really. I mean, uh, I think was an unusual front man, and I think he felt like a fish out of water. He didn't feel, he didn't feel like natural to him. He'd had, you know, he had problems with his with his eye, and that was I think that made him probably desperately self conscious as a as a kid and as a teenager. And I think that sort of fed into his sort of torment and his sort of sense of. You know, just the sense you had that he wasn't really entirely at peace with himself. Um, I don't know if he is now or what. Um, uh, I, is it a persona? I don't know that it's a persona. I think there's a sort of genuine something that just doesn't, it's just not at peace in the guy. Yeah. No, I think that's fair. It could be a little bit of both. But it's part of, it's part of, it's part of the itch that makes Radiohead so great, you know, I think. Oh, Yeah. I mean, he's not, you know, he's never going to be like a Bono, <laughs> thank God. <Yeah. laughs> he's sort of like the anti-Bono, he's the anti, you know, he's the guy who really has a problem with being the front man who wants everyone to love him, you know. Mm. At some level, he does want everyone to love him, but on the other hand, he knows that that kind of narcissism and exhibitionism is is so tiresome. Yeah. So he kind of fights against that, even as he... Even as it's unavoidable when you are the front man, it's una- you, the narcissism and sort of self-aggrandizement are unav- unavoidable. But but he's too intelligent to just be that kind of look at me front man. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense with how Radiohead talks about themselves. Mm. So exactly, yeah. exactly. He knows it's absurd. You know, at some level, he knows that that kind of pomposity and showing off and exhibitionism is is kind of absurd. Mm -hmm. And he knows that he can't do it in a kind of unselfconscious way. So, you know, he does, he sort of subverts the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, that is, that might be one of the reasons why a lot of these profiles really focus on Tom and at least some capacity. They're always trying to kind of unravel yeah. that mystery. He's kind of like the, he's like an anti-star. Yeah. I mean, you know, Cobain to some degree was an anti-star. Michael Stipe to some extent was an anti-star. And I think Tom, you know, fits into that mold. He's, he's, he's not, he's not comfortable with the role of the star, the rock star. Yeah. He's a kind of anti-star really. The band's disaffection with the press surfaces in numerous songs. One example is electioneering. In a 1997 interview, Tom explained, I had this phase I went through on an American tour where we just seemed to be shaking hands all the time and I was getting a bit sick of it and upset by it. So I came up with this running joke with myself where I used to shake people's hands and say, I trust I can rely on your vote. They'd go, ha ha ha, and look at me like I was a nutcase. But the phrase sort of carried on. It was like a mantra. The band even produced a documentary during the OK Computer period called Meeting People is Easy, which portrays their exhaustion with the music industry and press over the course of that tour. 
But despite this troubled relationship, Barney hopes that his anthology will ultimately increase readers' appreciation for the band. I guess, you know, I just hope there is some appreciation of the fact they are taken seriously, um, that their achievement is, you know, they are not just another rock band. Yeah. You know, there are a group of musicians who uh, really have reinvented what rock can do. And great artists, you know, they really are significant artists in the culture. Although through disparate points of view, Present Tense constructs a unified narrative of how one band redefined rock, and then abandoned that definition to create a genre entirely their own. For that reason, this book is for all music fans. Fans who want to understand why alternative music sounds the way it does today. Because Radiohead was, and still is, a key player. You've been listening to Fake Plastic Podcast. Fake Plastic Podcast is an alternate Thursdays production, with new episodes every other Wednesday. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you really liked this episode, please leave a review and share your thoughts on Instagram or Twitter at FakePlasticPod. If you're in the UK and would like to read Present Tense, you can find it at your neighborhood bookstore. If you're outside of the UK, you can find a copy online. I'm Savannah Wright. Thanks for listening.